Beloved congregation, brothers and sisters, the doctrine about infant baptism is a timely and somewhat pressing doctrine. All around us, we find churches that firmly believe that infant baptism is wrong. That's not only the case with Baptist churches, but also with Pentecostal churches and various evangelical churches. Most of these churches are full of Bible-believing Christians. They take the scriptures seriously. It is important to them to be faithful to God's word. And so as I prepared for this sermon, this made me think, what makes them so convinced that they are right about this? How do the Baptists come to their position? And why is it that we sometimes lose young people to these kinds of churches? What is the attraction? And I thought, well, I've been brought up in, a, in the Reformed faith, and maybe I've been blinded to their way of thinking because of my upbringing and my training as a Reformed minister. And so I wanted to open up my mind to a different point of view. And therefore, I read up more about this from their perspective. I also listened to some well-known modern-day theologians, such as John MacArthur and others. I wanted to be able to understand it from their perspective. What are they seeing that we don't? Of course, I also read and listened to well-known Reformed theologians, and I read my Bible. Not necessarily in that order. The Bible is the ultimate authority on everything. The problem is, for us, not for God, the problem is that the Bible doesn't state explicitly that children must be baptized. Nowhere do we find in the Bible the commandment that children need to be baptized. But you do not find the commandment in the Bible either that children are not allowed to be baptized. Consequently, we must carefully read the Bible and infer from what the Bible has to say about this what the truth is about infant baptism. That's also what we do with other doctrines. The Trinity, for example. Nowhere in the Bible will you find the word Trinity. And Jehovah Witnesses will make a big deal of that. And yet we can clearly conclude from the Bible that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person of the Trinity is plainly shown to be God. And therefore, when we speak about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, we speak biblically. A careful reading of the Bible and faithful submission to God's word does not allow you to come to a different conclusion. With infant baptism, we also have to look carefully at what the Bible says. And in so doing, and I'm most thankful for that, I was reconfirmed in my Reformed faith. I once again stood in awe of God's mercy, compassion, and wisdom in how he deals individually and corporately through the generations. I once again discovered that you could not come to any different conclusion than 
that the baptism of children is most certainly required. However, I must say that after looking at this doctor afresh, what I came away with was a greater understanding of the Baptist point of view, and I hope you will as well this morning. I also gained a deeper respect for those who hold that position. They are passionate in their faith, in, in their faith in Jesus as their Savior. And for that reason, I find it all the more disturbing that those who hold the baptism of believers only miss out on the great blessings God bestows upon his covenant children. For we are blessed indeed. In what way? Well, let us consider that as I preach to you about the blessings of infant baptism. The theme is as follows. Baptism signifies that believers and their children are set apart as God's covenant people. And then we will see what that means in the first place for us and secondly for our children. The main argument against the baptism of infants is that when baptism is mentioned in the New Testament, it is always done in connection with faith. Mark 16, verse 16 says that you must believe and be baptized. And Baptists will go to great lengths to emphasize that and refer to many scripture passages to show that one that when someone expresses his faith in the Lord Jesus, that then baptism follows. For example, in Acts 8, we read about the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. This man, who was already a believer in God, for he came from Jerusalem where he worshipped in the temple, this man, after Philip told him the good news about the Lord Jesus, believed in him. And so, because of his new faith in the Lord Jesus, he inquired if there was any reason for him not to be baptized. And when they came upon some water, they stopped the chariot he was riding in, and immediately he was baptized. There are many other stories about those who are baptized after they believe. Think about Lydia. She was also a worshiper of God. And whose heart was opened to respond to Paul's message of the good news about the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Acts 16, verse 15, that she then was baptized along with the members of her household. In Acts 16, we also read about the Philippian jailer who came to faith after Paul preached the gospel to him. It says in verse 33 that after that, he and all his family were baptized. And so there are other examples. The point is well taken. Those who hold to the baptism of believers only are right on that point. But that's not the point of contention we have with them. We also believe that you must be baptized because of your faith. That is why in the back of our book of praise, we also have a form for the baptism of adults. We would not baptize an adult if he were not a believer. And so what is the problem? So far, there is none. We all agree. However, please note that in our midst, the baptism of adults is a rare event. 
In my 34 years of ministry, I remember only having done it a few times, maybe half a dozen times. It's rare for us to have unbaptized converts becoming a member of the church. That's a cause for reflection. Perhaps that is why some people are so attracted to evangelical churches. In those churches, it is a much more frequent event. There's a lot of excitement and enthusiasm around this. It seems that in this way, they are more in tune with the New Testament church as described in the Bible. But let's put all this into the context and the times and circumstances in which this was done. We are at the beginning, in the Bible, we are at the beginning of the New Testament period when there was a significant change from the Old to the New Testament. And that is because Jesus Christ had just fulfilled all the ceremonial laws. And so in place of Passover came Lord's Supper. And as we Reformed people firmly believe, baptism came in the place of circumcision. That is why when baptism was introduced, everyone had to be baptized, including whole households. And so you can understand that at the beginning of the New Testament, believers' baptism was very frequent. Many people came to believe in Jesus and wanted to have the sign, the new sign of the covenant. And so there was a lot of baptism of adults. And that's the way it was in the New Testament church for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, whether you were circumcised or not. Everybody was baptized. But later, when baby baptism had become the norm, the baptism of adults, understandably, was no longer as frequent. Circumcision of adults in the Old Testament was also quite rare. For as you know, then the circumcision of babies was the norm. There were very few adult circumcisions. All adults were already circumcised. But I didn't mean that adult circumcision didn't happen. It did. For there were proselytes, those who came to the Jewish faith as adults. And to belong to the Jewish community and to be able to worship in the temple, you needed to be circumcised. And so they were. But that was the exception. Everybody else was already circumcised. But what about the change of circumcision to baptism? The main argument against those who hold to baptism for adults only is that baptism replaces circumcision. And our form for the baptism of infants also makes that one of its strongest arguments, as we just heard. And that is not something, of course, that Baptists agree with. They state that circumcision was an initiation right into the ethnic community. Circumcision sets you apart from the other nations. It only makes you part of God's covenant community. For then you belong to Abraham and to his offspring, to Israel. But what is circumcision? Well, again, let us consider the points on which there is general agreement. 
Both sides of the issue will argue that circumcision is a sign of the old covenant and that baptism is the sign of the new covenant. There is no escaping that. The Bible clearly teaches that. And there is no escaping the fact either that both circumcision and baptism are connected to faith. That is quite clear from what it says in Romans 3, verse 30, where we read that there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. And so for adults, faith was also necessary for circumcision. But, and here we begin to differentiate, what does circumcision signify? It signifies more than just belonging to Abraham and his seed. Circumcision signifies impurity and a consequent need for the shedding of blood and the removal of sin. The piece of foreskin at the time of the circumcision was thrown away, just like sin had to be thrown away and done away with. And now with Christ in the new covenant, the shedding of blood is no longer necessary. Why not? Because Christ shed his blood once for all. For that reason, circumcision had to be abolished. Something else had to take its place. And clearly, this is where baptism comes in. And baptism also signifies the doing away with sin. In Colossians 2, therefore, Paul calls baptism the circumcision without hands. To perform the ritual of circumcision, you had to be skilled with your hands. It was a delicate operation. And therefore, with baptism, such skillful use of the hands was no longer necessary. Baptism is the circumcision without hands. Now, the question is, if infants in the Old Testament needed to be circumcised as a sign of the covenant and of the removal of sin, why then are there those who refuse to baptize their children? Well, there are many reasons for that. At the time of the Reformation, the Anabaptists came to their position because they wanted to make a radical break with the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And that's understandable, for the Roman Catholics had made baptism more than it is. According to the Roman Church, it is through the water of baptism that you receive grace. As soon as you receive the sacrament, God's grace is poured into you. And without God's grace, you cannot be saved. And that is why it is so important for a Roman Catholic parent to have their child baptized as soon as possible, for else the child would not be saved. In, an, in emergencies, even a nurse can baptize a child. And in this way, baptism became a ticket to heaven. And so ultimately, you can live whatever life you lead. You can even be a member of the mafia. But as long as you're baptized and as long as you also throughout your life partake in of the other sacraments of the church, then you will be saved. It is through the participation of the sacrament that you are saved. 
Oh, sure, you may have to spend some time in purgatory for a while, but ultimately you will be saved because of the sacraments that you received in the church. And baptism is one of the most important sacraments. In this way, the Roman Catholic Church removes the connection between faith and baptism. And so it's a great concern because also other Protestant churches who have gone away from the preaching of the word also make baptism a more important doctrine as if you are not a Christian without being baptized, but they won't go to church or do anything else. No. And that's why there are so many baptized people nowadays who actually never go to church. And so it's a great concern. It is understandable that the Anabaptists at the time of the Reformation no longer wanted anything to do with those kinds of practices. That's a great concern for us as well. We may never think that baptism saves you. It doesn't. It's merely a sign, a picture representing the real thing. And you may not confuse the picture with the real thing. For example, if you were to see a picture of the Queen of England, you could say to someone, that's the Queen. But you would not be lying. But no one would think that you mean that that is actually the Queen herself in that picture, as if she could just walk out of that picture. No, that picture only represents her. It shows us what she looks like and reminds us what, of what she stands for. Now, the same thing is true of baptism. It is only a picture of what it represents. The water represents the blood of Christ through which we are cleansed. Therefore, the water of baptism as such doesn't save you. No, it points to the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Baptism does not automatically save you. And that is why when children become of age, do they have to make profession of their faith. The connection between faith and baptism needs to be made. If children, however, do not come to that point and do not want to live as a child of God and do not want to belong to God's covenant people and do not want to come to church any longer, they don't want anything to do with their upbringing in the faith, then in the end it becomes as if they have never received baptism. Oh sure, the baptism itself was real and contained all the promises, but when you walk away from it, it is no longer real for you. If those who have been baptized no longer live according to what baptism signifies and do not repent, they will be treated as unbelievers. Today, there are many people who are baptized heathens. They were baptized as children, but they never really came to faith. Even though they were baptized, they will not be saved unless they repent. But there were many circumcised heathens as well. The scriptures throughout tell us about them. Numerous Israelites, God's own covenant people, rejected him. They were all circumcised, but many of them were not saved. In the end, although they were circumcised, they were treated as if they were not. 
And that is because they did not keep God's covenant law and love God and their neighbor as themselves. They were a law unto themselves. But it does not mean that God now wanted to do away with circumcision. No, for to the Israelites, circumcision was connected to the promises. God commanded Abraham and his offspring to be circumcised, and with it he attached the promises of earthly and eternal blessings. And those promises were received by the children throughout the, through the parents. We come to the second point. As I said, what a blessing it is that we may have our children baptized and that parents can bring their children to the baptismal font. That's just happened again this morning, a few moments ago. What a blessing for our children to receive the sign and seal of the covenant and that they can receive God's promises that through the gospel they may be saved. Of course, baptized babies don't understand any of that yet. Peter J. Scoopmans doesn't understand that yet. That will take a few years before he does. But the parents, as Jeremy and Jessica just did, make promises that they are going to bring up their child in the knowledge of those wonderful promises that God makes to the believers and their seed. As family, they belong to God's covenant people. In that regard, there is no difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament children. The inclusion in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is through familial solidarity. In other words, through families. And the covenant is not just a belonging to an ethnic community. Oh, sure, that was an important element in the Old Testament. And then circumcision made you part of the Jewish people. But the covenant we now have is new, as it says in Hebrews 8. And now there is a greater inclusion. Now families from all kinds of nations may receive the same promises. For Abraham is the father of all believers. How exactly are you included? How does that work within a family? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 7 that even if only one parent is a believer, then their child is to be considered holy, sanctified. But it says the same thing about an unbelieving partner. It says that if one of the partners in the marriage is an unbeliever, then he or she is sanctified through the other. Isn't that amazing? How, you may ask, how can an unbeliever be holy, sanctified? Well, because of the Christian family to which that person belongs. For you must understand sanctification here in the proper sense in accordance with the original meaning of that word. The primary meaning of sanctification is that you have been set apart, set apart from the world. And that is what happens within a marriage, even if there is an unbeliever in the marriage. How so? Well, what will a believing partner do? Well, he or she will do everything possible to make the partner as much as possible to come into contact with the gospel through devotions at, 
at meal times and prayers. In this way, the unbelieving partner is given a privileged position in the midst of this sinful world. And that unbelieving partner is brought into contact continually with the gospel of salvation. We usually understand sanctification to refer both to the outward and inward working of the Holy Spirit, but it can also refer exclusively to the outward working of the Holy Spirit. And that's the sense that it has here in this text. And that is what happens to an unbelieving partner. And that is also what happens to a child. Baptism as such does not regenerate you, but it does alert you to the fact that you have been set apart and that you are constantly brought into contact with the gospel of salvation through those whom the Lord has put on your path as your family. That's why families are so important. And that's why the Lord God also says that he blesses in the generations. In the New Testament, there are 12 references to people who are baptized. But note that a quarter of them, so four, include households. Those who hold to the, belie- to the baptism of believers only state that there likely were not any young children in those households, and that therefore we cannot prove anything by this. They say that ours is an argument from silence, and that's true. But what a pregnant silence that is. How likely do you think it would be that if there were no little children included in those households which were baptized, highly unlikely. But not only that, nowhere do we see in the New Testament that now suddenly children are no longer included in the covenant community. Why would children who formerly were in the Old Testament were included in the covenant and received God's promises will no longer be included in the new. If there was such a change, don't you think that a big deal would have been made of this? There is no mention of such a change of the status of children in the New Testament. Another argument the Baptists will make is that not only is there no mention of infant baptism in the New Testament, but there is no mention of infant baptism in the history of the early church either. Oh, sure, they admit that the well-known theologian Origen mentions that infant baptism, he mentions infant baptism and wrote that infant baptism was, and now I quote, was the universal custom of the church and that it is rooted and grounded in the apostolic tradition. End quote. But the Baptists dismissed this significance of that statement since it was written 250 years after Christ, or some 200 years after Christ, and that within that time frame, somehow the baptism of children must have become the practice. They say that the church changed things during that time frame. They went from the baptism of adults to the baptism of children. And that change came about, they say, over those 200 years. Brothers and sisters, do you really think that if the early church had gone from the baptism of adults to the baptism of infants during those 200 years, that then there would have been no mention of that in the writings of the early church fathers? That there would be no written records of that? 
All kinds of documents are found from the third and second century after Christ about these, about very important doctrinal discussions. Think about the discussion about the Trinity, for example. That issue had been brewing for close to 200 years, and then finally in 325 AD, after the persecution ended, the churches came together to refute these heresies that had been floating around for these many years. There are all kinds of documents dealing with those important doctrinal issues before the Council of Nicaea, and yet you do not find anywhere any change about the baptism of infants. Why not? Because there was never any change. Children were always included in the covenant, just like they were in the Old Testament, and they were included through the parents. And there would have been a lot of discussions if that doctrine had been changed. And so it's a good thing that we did not throw away the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, as the Anabaptists did during the Reformation. God blesses in the generations. He blesses little children through the parents who bring them up in the knowledge of God's promises. And that's why we also see such a strong generational representation here in this church building. Great-grandparents and grandparents and parents and children and little children, they are all part of the covenant community and they are all represented here in this building, sitting in this building here right now. What a blessing. Oh, sure, it would be wonderful if we had more adult baptisms. We could do with some of the zeal of evangelicals and to bring God's word to whomever and wherever we can. It is good to see that there are so many people in this congregation who are eager to reach out to unbelievers and those who are estranged from the gospel. May that work continue. May that kind of activity also increase. But let us not do that at the expense of the covenant through familial association. Let us now not become individualistic in our approach. Because that is what we do find in many of the evangelical churches. Those churches, although they are faithful in so many ways, are geared to the individual and to the individual's needs and requirements. And for that reason, in those churches, people come and go constantly. There's no strong commitment to a church community as such. And that is why those churches are always in flux. And that is why their children are more likely to walk away from God and his church, for they leave it up to their children to come to God through faith. No, God gives you faith through the parents and through the rest of the covenant community. And there has to be a strong bond between the members of the covenant. As covenant community, we do not easily walk away from each other. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. And we can only do that if we are truly convinced that you, they have totally gone away from God and his ordinances. We are brothers and sisters in the Lord. We are the household of God. What a blessing. However, let's be careful that we don't become cliquish either. For that tends to be a problem with us as well. Because of our strong identification with families, we stick together. And that can sometimes make it harder for others to fit in. 
And therefore, without compromising the gospel of salvation in all its richness, we have to be careful that we are as exclusive as we can be and as welcoming as we can be. Brothers and sisters, God greatly blesses us in the covenant through the covenant that he has established with us as believers and our seed. We are blessed, not because of ourselves, but because of God. It's all his doing. And in his wisdom, he blesses in the generations. Be thankful and be faithful to the promises that he makes and keenly aware that demands that he makes as well of the demands. Give thanks to him for salvation through no merit of our own. Give thanks to him through the generations. And then the Lord will also bless you through the generations and bless us as his covenant community. Amen.